Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we have a very uh, special guest, Willa Cochran. She's a nurse practitioner with the Transplant Infectious Disease Team at Hopkins and has a, uh, a very interesting past that included work in uh, Africa as part of the Peace Corps and also has a degree in music. She's worked in the fields of HIV and transplantation and COVID for uh, the past several years. So, uh, Willa, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I joined the Transplant ID team in 2015. It was my first gig out of NP school, and it was way more specialized than I had planned to be for a first nurse practitioner job. And I have loved the specialty and fortunate enough to plan to continue in it probably for the rest of my career. Great. Terrific. So you started your work in healthcare how? I, as you mentioned, did Peace Corps in Guinea in West Africa, and I was a, a high school teacher, and I taught reproductive health and HIV prevention. And there was a civil unrest in Guinea, and we were evacuated. And so when I got back to the United States, I was trying to find a way that I could use the, a language called Malinke, which I was fluent in and didn't find a lot of jobs <laughs> seeking that skill. And I ended up working at an organization called African Services Committee in Harlem. Um, my role was as an HIV case manager, helping families from West Africa navigate the healthcare system. And part of my role was to translate in Malinke and French for um, HIV care visits. And I did that for five years and then looked into how much school it would take to be the messenger rather than the translator of that um, information. And the answer was move to Baltimore and do three years of school. And so that's what I did. Great. Now you, uh, so you speak three languages fluently? I used to. You used to. And one of the things that you taught me early on and and now has become uh, really standard is uh, when somebody does not share the same language as you, as a clinician, you're not really serving them well by winging it. Correct. It may help your ego, but it doesn't give them the same care that you're giving to folks who speak English as a first language. So, for example, I uh, have uh, consistently worked at improving my Spanish, yet I, I need to be honest when I see a patient that my Spanish, which might work for watching uh, a, a soccer game on Univision or uh, maybe ordering at a restaurant, is not what they need. Correct. It's actually illegal to uh, to wing it if you're not a licensed medical translator. Yeah, and and that's that's something that's changed during my career. And that it was not always uh, it was considered, you know, you're giving it your best shot, or you can uh, pull in a uh, colleague who might have that language uh, and and do it. But really, it's been much more uh, formalized, regulated, and now we have the uh, translation services, either in person or with the advent uh, of technology, be able to do it in the room. Yeah, we have fantastic translation services available. I've I've never had a problem getting a, a translator for any language I've needed. Yeah. And uh, I, I think in the era of COVID where we've gotten used to doing uh, telemedicine and distance medicine, it just becomes uh, quite seamless to be able to have the distance translator. Yep. I agree. All right. So um, you um, decided to go to uh, nurse practitioner school. Uh, were you working as an RN before then? 
Um, no. So I took prerequisite classes in New York, the borough of Manhattan Community College. So I get up at six and I did my, my coursework from six to seven. And then I take the train for an hour to Harlem and then I do my job. And then I go to the borough of Manhattan Community College and take my night classes and then go home and do it again. Um, so it was oh. about two years of prerequisites to apply to NP school. And then at the time, Johns Hopkins School of Nursing had a direct entry bachelor's to master's. There's a different setup now, but at the time you you got an accelerated bachelor's in nursing and then a master's in nursing and then took the took the credentialing exam to be a licensed nurse practitioner. Got it. So putting yourself now in the shoes of a mentor, a young person is coming up in the ranks and they're trying to decide about their career. Why would you uh, recommend or God forbid dissuade somebody from becoming a uh, nurse practitioner? For me, the choice to be a nurse practitioner, I, I actually had a, a brunch at my house in Brooklyn that was called um, Convince Me Which Degree to Pick. And I invited one nurse practitioner and one nurse and one physician who all worked in HIV primary care mm -hmm. because I knew I wanted to work in HIV care, but I didn't know which role I wanted. And during that brunch, Obviously, I didn't come to it without <laughs> without any thoughts on which role I would like. But the nurse practitioner really convinced me that the that the role of the nurse was really in line with my my goals, which was to sort of provide a patient centered, sort of holistic approach to wellness, and that I could have a broader spectrum of responsibilities if I were a physician. Mm -hmm. um, that the work that I was looking to do was in fact well-suited for a nurse practitioner. So I looked at the duration of training. Um, I was 31 when I started NP school and some of my classmates were 23. And I basically was looking at what's my, what's the most comprehensive training I can get to do the work that I want to do while still maintaining some work-life balance. And so that's, that's why the degree now in the role I, I realize that my position is a little bit unique in that I work on a team that are all physicians. So our, our group, we have, I believe, eight physicians and myself. And I'm fortunate that they also all happen to be fantastic colleagues and friends. So I, I imagine other NPs might have a different experience being on a team of all physicians. Um, but in, in my case, it has meant that I've been I've been given autonomy to work to the height of my license mm -hmm. with, with an invitation to ask for help when I need it, but I very rarely get unsolicited advice. So mm -hmm. I, I work independently. I do not need a physician oversight on my prescriptions, on my diagnoses, on my care plans, but I have, I, I can tap into the expertise of my colleagues whenever I need it, but folks are not, um, checking to make sure that I've dotted I's or cross T's. And so I, I think that that is, I think I'm well suited to that kind of role. I don't know if ever, anybody would love not having oversight because for some people they want their, they want the collaboration that comes with collaborating with physicians or with nurses and on a, on a more team approach. But I, I have an autonomous practice, but with access to folks when I don't know the answer. And I think one of the most important parts is that I am, fully aware that I don't always know the answer and I have to ask when I don't, I think that it would, I think I would feel ill-equipped if I didn't have the backup support at and times where I needed it. 
So I, I think one of your um, superpowers is execution. And I would say that if we had to um, have a, uh, a sort of a balance sheet as to who asked questions of each other more, I'd say probably I'm asking you twice as many questions as you're asking me. And uh, both in, in terms of how would you approach this type of situation? And then again, your superpower is how do we make it happen from this uh, thing that we want to do for somebody to actually making it happen? How did you get to be so good at execution? Um, I don't think I'm being self-deprecating when I say that the fact that we're at a massive institution really helps me execute. So we're we're in a place where we have leadership that value our opinions and our ideas. And so I am fortunate enough to have a network of leadership that if if we say something is important, they believe us and they help us make it happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I think I was raised to try stuff and to feel like I was, I was good enough to try anything I was interested in trying and, Mm -hmm. and to know that just because you tried it and it (laughs) didn't turn out doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. So maybe keep trying things. I don't know. I think probably having done three years in West Africa and then five years in Harlem helped me um, not feel like Johns Hopkins or East Baltimore were any more or less insurmountable than any other um, institution or, or community. And so I just, Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't feel, I rarely feel like it would be unreasonable for me to make an ask or try something else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, again, my personal experience is that, that, that when I have an idea of something that I might want done, and I talk to you, you're able to both uh, tell me the specific words as to how to make it happen, reframe it in a way that can make it happen, and then uh, have a network of people that can um, try to implement it. So I think not self-deprecating, but I say that you're, you're very good at being able to navigate that. One of the things that you have um, success in is navigating the EPIC system, the computer system. Did, did you start out with an interest in uh, technology or is this something that is just part of the, how do we get things done mentality? Definitely the latter. I'm, I'm uh, fairly useless compared to my peers when it comes to compu- computer literacy. I texted my partner the other night and I said, you're downloading something on the laptop. Is it okay for me to unplug my cell phone or will that mess something up? And he said, your cell phone's plugged in the wall. um (laughs) epic had we changed from um sunrise was it i can't even remember the old emr to epic my first year at hopkins and i had i had the role of being one of the quote-unquote super users and so i wore a red polo shirt and walked around to help people learn the, the new transition but I had only ever done Epic on the outpatient side. So I was already familiar with it from mm-hmm. school. So I think probably the only reason I know some tricks is that um, when I was learning Epic, I was also in a student role. And so I was, I had like, I don't know, I had a lot of training courses in the basement of some building and, and uh-huh. a lot of like required trainings as a student, maybe. That's all I can think of. But I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm an Epic whiz, but I'm certainly, I certainly know what to ask. Well, uh, what I took from my training mostly was that you hover to discover. Uh, yeah, but uh, <laughs> one of the th- couple of the things that you've done with Epic that have been uh, very effective is uh, getting on top of virology. So with uh, CMV, there was a uh, project that we worked on together where um, the problem was that we had good therapies for prophylaxis, but somehow they weren't being applied evenly. And um and patients were uh, occasionally uh, breaking through with toxicity 
or with uh, viremia. So um, how did you go about that project then? Well, tell us a little bit about the project and, and, and how you use the, uh, the systems plus your elbow grease to get our outcomes much better. Sure. So there were a few very specific deliverables uh, assigned to my position when I started. I was told that it was a new role and that my, my task at hand was to reduce preventable infections in solid organ transplant recipients. <laughs> and then they, they had done a survey of the most common infectious causes of readmission in solid organ recipients. And CMV was right up there, if not the top. And as you know, CMV is preventable and there are certain um, groups of patients who are at higher risk, namely patients whose donors were antibody positive, whereas the recipient was antibody negative. And we have some evidence-based beautiful protocols that reduce the risk of um, CMV acquisition after transplant. When I started, we had done a very good job of making the protocols, of ordering the labs, of checking the results and adjusting accordingly when we got results, but we didn't know what we didn't know. So there were a lot of missing labs. There were a lot of patients whose dose of valgancyclovir, which was uh, being taken for CMV prophylaxis, was either too high or too low for their renal function. And so together with your help and with partners on the EPIC side and also partners in the clinic team, we built a report in the medical record that would tell us when we were not following our own protocol. And it runs in real time. So anytime you click on it, it's telling you as of right now, who who's either valgancyclovir dose or um, CMV monitoring labs are not consistent with our protocol. So it runs, I run it once a week and now renal transplant colleagues have taken over that responsibility. Uh, and we just send, we just shoot a message to the provider or the nurse coordinator and say, heads up, looks like this is inconsistent with our, what we say is the best practice. And um, so if it was intentional because you know it a provider can choose to to deviate from the protocol if, if it's in the patient's best interest but we don't always know if we've accidentally deviated from the protocol and so it, i shoot a message that says heads up here's where this patient stands and then the the patient can take it from there and so rather than a finger wag or asking folks to try to keep track of this on their own we it was a systems change that helped us have a tool to know what we didn't know yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's a great example of of teamwork and of what a uh, a nurse practitioner and a nurse and a uh, physician and some pharmacists and technology people can do to uh, improve patients' health. Uh, thinking about it in a sort of a musical sense, I love jazz. Jazz is wonderful, but there is a difference between playing a blue note on purpose and uh, and missing a uh, a chord or something like that. So. This is to make sure that uh, that whatever blue notes are played, they're done on purpose. Exactly. So that was great. A lot of progress. And then COVID came. Uh, how did your role change with COVID? So in January 2020, I went to lunch with two colleagues from the Hope team, Christine Durand and Diane Brown. And I told them that I was really enjoying my role, but I, I would welcome 
a little bit of change. I would welcome, you know, a similar role, but maybe a different disease process. So I still wanted to work in transplant, but I, I wanted, you know, like maybe a different viral process to sort of focus on. And what I learned from that is you should be careful what you put out into the universe. <laughs> eight weeks later, <laughs> eight weeks later, COVID showed up. So my role is, I'm going to say probably 75% COVID right now. And it sort of ebbs and flows with different surges, but I spend much of my time now helping folks navigate how to prevent or treat COVID. And and I would say that that the uh, what happened in those months is that there was a huge uh, need and, and you um, stepped into the breach to uh, help bridge what patients needed and what was being done. So uh, I think that, um, yes, be careful what you wish for, but I think that we were all very lucky and the patients to, to, to have you uh, willing and, and able and having the skills to to make the difference. So you mentioned uh, uh, Christine Durand, and so you also have a big role in HIV. You've maintained that. Tell us about that. Yeah. So in my final year of NP school, I did a clinical rotation with Christine Durand at then the Moore Clinic, um, which is actually now where I'm sitting. Um, My office is in the former Moore Clinic. It is now moved to a different location and is now called the Bartlett Clinic. So I spent a year with Christine and it is it was at that time that she got the NIH funding for the Hope in Action study, which is HIV positive donor to HIV positive recipient kidney and or liver transplants. And at the time she um, needed to transition some of her clinic patients to get her a lot some time for the study. And it was at the same time that the Comprehensive Transplant Center was looking to reduce infectious complications of transplant. And so this this is part of s- sort of how my my role, which was a new role at the time, um, sort of came about. So I follow anybody living with HIV who either needs a transplant or has had one. So if someone is living with HIV, they need to see either myself or Dr. Durand before getting actively listed. And that's so that we can assure that they are healthy enough from an HIV perspective to go to transplant but also screen for any opportunistic infections they would be at risk for after transplant based on their HIV history. Got it. So uh, looking at uh, the different possibilities with uh, HIV, so we have uh, donor negative recipient positive. This is something that we've been doing for a long time. What are the special needs of HIV positive patients that are recipients uh, that you sometimes encounter and that you'd like people to know about? Yeah. So thanks to first Peter Stock and then Dr. Durand, we know that folks living with HIV who need a kidney transplant are not necessarily at increased risk for infection after transplant compared to their HIV negative peers. Mm -hmm. They need to have a CD4 count over 200. They need to have an HIV viral load that's been undetectable for at least six months. They need to be on a treatment regimen that doesn't interact with certain anti-rejection drugs that they would need after transplants. And they need to not have had certain opportunistic infections, which would be life-threatening after Mm -hmm. transplants. And those are very, very few. So most people living well with HIV qualify for a transplant from the HIV perspective. And we were certainly using a lot less ritonavir-based regimens. We avoid it at all costs. Yeah. We have, I, in my tenure, I think there have been maybe three people who have gone to transplant on ritonavir, and 
their courses are more complicated because of trying to manage chapter alignments in the setting of retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, so folks living with HIV are not necessarily at increased risk for infection post-transplant. We know that folks whose donors are not uh, living with HIV don't have any, there's no difference in their post-transplant care. If their donors were living with HIV, we have collected donor HIV history, including any antiretroviral resistance. And in some cases, we change the antiretroviral regimen in the recipient based on donor HIV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so let's, let's um, dig into that a little bit. So HIV positive donor, I say obviously, but uh, maybe it's not so obvious. There is no mismatch that happens. There's no HIV positive donor with an HIV negative recipient, but there are HIV positive donors with HIV positive recipients, HIV to HIV. Um, so I guess the first question to that is, is, is it safe? Uh, the pilot data from the HOPE study, it seems to show that indeed it is as safe as renal transplant from HIV negative donor to HIV positive recipient. Mm-hmm. Um, in some, a, a virologist on the HOPE study team took looked at 22 donor recipient pairs who were donor positive, recipient positive for HIV and sequenced the HIV virus and found no cases where the recipient was carrying donor strain of virus. Mm-hmm. That's 22 out of many, many more, um, but it's promising. Mm -hmm. Um, that we didn't, we've not seen evidence of super infection. Clinically, we've also not seen evidence of super infection in terms of folks uh, having HIV viremia that is not controlled by the regimen that they were on at the time of transplant. Mm -hmm. So is it safe? I mean, we're waiting for, you know, there are maybe, I think, 35 transplant centers nationally participating in the study. The kidney arm is fully enrolled. The livers are not fully enrolled yet. And we're certainly looking forward to that data, but the goal of the study is to determine whether or not it is safe. Yeah. And at this point, in terms of the donor criteria, does the donor have to be viral load negative? Can they have a little bit of virus flying around? Can they be out of control? So I will take out of control out of the off the table, and I'll use maybe some more nuanced language in that if they're on medicine, mm-hmm. they need to be undetectable. Okay. Not not virus, not a 500 copies of HIV. We, like if, if they were, if they were adherent to their medication, their viral load would be undetectable. And so that's, that's a criteria for donors. If they did not know their HIV status at the time of death, they will have virus on board, mm-hmm. but the odds of them having antiretroviral resistance mm-hmm. are low because they didn't know, and they weren't on medication, sure. course, you know, acquire resistance from the, from whomever we got the virus from we can we can then inherit their resistance sure uh, the risk of resistance in a donor who was unaware of their hiv status and was not on treatment is is lower um so we have accepted viremic donors in in that scenario great great and then in terms of the um organs that are eligible for this so you said kidney liver heart kidney liver or both at the same time uh-huh and, and and there are some centers that have done heart, but it's not part of this study. My understanding is the HOPE study is not currently covering heart, but I but I might not be the last word on that one. <laughs> and um, in terms of um, 
uh, hepatitis C. Is that something you're also involved with? Uh, and, and how has that worked out? So anybody can consent to receive an organ from a hep C positive donor. If you are a candidate for transplant and you are living with hepatitis C and your liver function is stable, you can and should wait to treat your hepatitis C because if you are consented for a hep C positive donor, regardless of your own hepatitis C status, the, that list moves quicker. The odds of getting an offer for an organ faster are better if you are consented for hep C positive donors, both if you're living with hep C or not living with hep C before transplant and your donor had hepatitis C, mm-hmm. um, then I, if you're not enrolled in a study, then I follow that patient after transplant and I wait for their HCV RNA to become detectable. And then I um, cure the hep C. Wow. So it, it's, to me, this is science fact, but uh, I'd say five years ago, all would have sounded like science fiction and just an amazing uh, advance in uh, available therapies. And again, execution, execution, logistics, logistics of making this happen. And so much of that execution and logistics happened before I started treating folks for hep C. So that our, you know, our colleagues who did the, the huh. trial, our, our colleagues in Ergot, as well as Christine Durand and Narash Asai have done extensive studies to get us to this point. So it's standard of care now, but only because folks took this on um, under research protocol. And I think that's an incredibly important point is that uh, that, that things that seem uh, far away and impossible in transplantation and in other fields can be done if, if people have uh, are energetic about it, they're thoughtful, they put a plan in place, and, and, and here we are doing things that really uh, a few years ago seemed far from us. And I will add to energetic and thoughtful and plan in place, I will add the, the funding and the structure. So we, again, we're at a massive institution that encourages this kind of side hustle adjacent to clinical practice. Mm-hmm. I, my colleagues who are working in FQHCs, don't, they don't have the opportunities to dip into hep C research for two hours a week. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I fully agree in that. The uh, so when people ask me what is it that makes Hopkins great, I, I I tell them it's it's the nursing from the bedside to the boardroom, and it's the laboratories that will work super hard to get an answer for you, and it's the infrastructure. And that's not me downplaying the role of the clinicians, but the clinicians at a community hospital are just as smart or smarter and just as innovative. But the uh, the ability to to get things done because of having a uh, large institution with the infrastructure and the vision cannot be overestimated. And the, the fun, some of these things are uh, are expensive. And as one of the uh, little sisters of the poor said, no, no margin, no mission. Yeah, I agree. All right. We have a few more minutes to go. So I'm going to hit you with a case and uh, and then we'll wrap up. So uh, this is a uh, not an actual person. This is a composite of several people, but it's for illustrative purposes. 54-year-old woman with history of polycystic kidney disease for which she underwent a kidney transplant in December of 2017. She receives mycophenolate, tacrolimus, prednisone, her graft function has been good and things have been stable. She received the uh, primary vaccination for COVID and the uh, requisite booster. And her grandson, whom she helps care for, has COVID-19 and she now has a sore throat. So uh, they call you and what do you do? What's your next step? Lucky for me, they probably called their transplant nurse coordinator first and our 
nurse coordinator and NP team has a fantastic protocol in place for these calls because we get about 10 a day right now. Mm -hmm. So the first step would be to do a home rapid COVID test if she has one. And if it is positive, then we move forward with a series of steps, which I'll describe. If it is negative, I will ask her to keep testing once a day, actually, until the symptoms go away. If she has home tests, if she doesn't, I'll order a PCR and ask her to come in. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're seeing folks that can test negative up to three days in a row of symptoms. And then by day three or four, they end up having a positive home test. Um, Once we have a positive test of any kind, we will refer her for treatment. We will remind her that she's not to take a pill called Paxlovid. Paxlovid contains ritonavir. Ritonavir, we mentioned earlier in HIV drugs, but it interacts with tacrolimus. We have seen, sadly, we have seen folks become very sick and won't even die after getting Paxlovid while on tacrolimus. It boosts the tacro level. And we had a patient with a tacro level of, I think, 98 was the highest I've seen. So she's not going to take Paxlovid. She is going to get an IV monoclonal antibody called Bevtilovimab. Depending on where she lives, we can refer her to get that infused in-home. If she doesn't have access to in-home infusion, we can bring her into the convention center site here. Or if she is not local, we can reach out to her, the, the closest bigger hospital center, to see if they have an infusion center. Most of our patients that get Bevtilovimab feel better within one day. I don't need to tell you how monoclonal antibodies work, but the way I describe it to my patients is, um, forgive me if virologists are listening. <laughs> so antibodies have a spike protein. The spike protein fits in a parking spot on a, on a human cell. And so the monoclonals don't stop you from getting COVID, but if the antibodies are floating around, excuse me, if the virus is floating around in your bloodstream looking for a place to park, the monoclonals put a weird hat on that spike protein so it doesn't fit in the parking spot. So if goes around looking for a parking spot, can't find one and dies trying. Love it. I used to say that the monoclonals blocks the parking spot, but my understanding is for Evusheld, it's a hat on the spike protein. So anyway, I'm not going to call all my patients back and tell them that I got that detail wrong because I think that the general premise is still. Mm -hmm. So yeah, most of them feel better within about a day. Transplant recipients isolate for 20 days if they have COVID. Um, and that's because they shed virus for longer because it takes their immune system longer to shed. Great. So one other thing to add. Yes. She's going to stop her mycophenolate. Stop the mycophenolate. And that is something that is super important. If the mycophenolate is on board, it is harder for the body to fight the virus. And so stopping it, um, And so a little bit more to the Paxlovid, there are some people around the country who have been able to give Paxlovid, which contains ritonavir, along with tacrolimus. And I'm certainly not saying that that's not possible. We have found it to be uh, logistically difficult to both adjust the tacrolimus dose and to measure the level while they are either a person under investigation or a person with with COVID. Yeah, we have... 5,500 solid organ recipients at our center. And we have 14 outpatient advanced practice providers and 32 coordinators. The volume of work that it would take to refer any patient with COVID for in-home lab draws to monitor their tacro level because they took Paxlovid, it just, there's just way too many opportunities for, for error. You know, like we, again, if we don't know what we don't know, 
and folks have a high level of tack alignments and we don't bring them in, and then that's on us. So for us, we because we're fortunate enough to still have access to bevtilovimab, that is the first line of therapy for our folks. And you mentioned access to beptilovimab, and there's a couple of issues that are percolating along with that. One is that the history of monoclonal antibodies is that the virus ultimately mutates and makes them ineffective. So far, even with the new variants, beptilovimab is effective. So it, it's it's survived through the uh, the spring and the summer. And the other issue is that so far, the uh, access to the drugs has been paid for by the federal government, but things are uh, are changing in that regard. And I believe that pretty soon, if maybe it already has happened, uh, that funding has run out. Indeed. I'm not aware of a new source of bevtilovimab that's going to be shipped out to centers. So we we have sort of our finger on the pulse of, of availability at various infusion sites. And we are we will continue to use this drug as long as we can. And we might have folks might have to start traveling further to get it, unfortunately, if our if our closest local infusion centers are. And we're, so we're monitoring the issue as to whether people will have to pay out of pocket, and it can get quite pricey, whether people will have their insurance covered if they have insurance, and whether uh, we can use our uh, advocacy network to try to convince local and federal governments to keep paying for it to be determined. And what's particularly tricky about it is this is prescribed when folks don't feel terrible. So yes. If, if you take it when you don't feel terrible, you might not then become very sick very symptomatic rather. Yeah. If you don't feel terrible and it costs money, I don't know how many people will then skip it. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you everybody for joining us on the Transplant ID podcast. We look forward to having additional conversations with Willa in the future and with additional interesting people. Thanks everyone. Thanks. This was fun.